We're back. This is officially the reboot for the Obi Gino Wino podcast, which was my foray into podcasting back when I was in fellowship at UC San Diego. I was also working as a hospitalist uh, at Scripps Encinitas. I was studying for my oral, my surgical boards, which is the second part, the harder part of the board certification process for OBGYNs. And I was going through the practice bulletins and committee opinions from ACOG, and I was like, God, this is a lot of work. And man, how am I going to summarize these 25-page documents? So I started taking notes as like study guides for myself. And then I was like, man, it'd be helpful to be able to read this and then listen to it myself. And as I started recording them, I was realizing, oh man, other people could probably use this too. And it was this massive hit. I was like super stoked on that. But then I started wanting to have conversations and that's where the Holistic OBGYN podcast emerged. But now I'm going back through all of the summary documents that I produce and I'm updating them because they get updated every once in a while. There's not massive updates, but there are some updates. And as I'm going through that, I was thinking, let's just reboot this whole project. So we're going to cover practice bulletin number 233, which was published back in August 2021, anemia in pregnancy. This is a, a one of the practice guidelines that was um, replaced an old one, finally, after several years. And so we're going to cover this, and um, you can just sit back and relax. I'm not going to read through all of my notes, but you can find the notes. If you um, subscribe to my Patreon account for 5 bucks a month, you'll get access to all of these summary documents. And um, you can, I guess, just enjoy this podcast recording as kind of like the highlights. But if you want to get into the deeper into the data and into the practice bulletins, I mean, these things are super packed. They are heavy, heavy, heavy documents. And you can go to Patreon. It supports the production of the show, and it's just five bucks a month. So you can get all the show notes there. I'll also be publishing essays there, which you'll hear on the other podcast, The Holistic of Joanne, but there's a nice kind of blogging platform on Patreon as well. So check out the podcast description, and you'll find a link to the Patreon account there. All right, anemia and pregnancy, the five pearls. Oh, <laughs> I'm forgetting. The most important part of this show is that we always pair a specific wine with every episode. And this one, I don't drink a lot anymore, but when I do, <laughs> I choose a Sam Adams. <laughs> no, I try to choose organic wines. It doesn't always happen, but uh, there's one brand in particular, Bonterra, that is available in like Sprouts and Kroger and Whole Foods. And they use organic grapes. So they're Cabernet Sauvignon. Put a picture in the show notes in case you want to take a look at that. The Cabernet Sauvignon from Bonterra is our wine for this episode. All right. Five pearls. Number one, normal physiologic changes in pregnancy are that are relevant in anemia. Blood volume expands by 50%, meaning an increased iron requirement. Red uh, blood cell mass increases by 25% in a singleton pregnancy. And increased iron stores in the female body during pregnancy help to sustain the increased demand from the growing baby, the growing placenta, this increase in circulating blood. Two, 
Low serum ferritin is the most sensitive and specific single lab finding in iron deficiency anemia. Three, the CDC recommends universal screening for iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy along with universal supplementation. Four, B12 deficiency and folic acid deficiency are common causes of macrocytic, that's enlarged blood cells, um, macrocytic anemia. And folic acid deficiency is much more likely than B12 unless you're a true vegan. And number five, blood transfusions are almost never indicated in pregnancy apart from the rare case of a large concealed placental abruption, like when you get a collection of blood, a big hematoma, effectively, between the uterus and the placenta. If the hemoglobin is less than 6 grams per deciliter, that's associated with abnormal fetal oxygenation, which can lead to non-reassuring fetal heart rate patterns, reduced amniotic fluids, fetal cerebral vasodilation, and fetal death. So this is an important topic. Um, I think it's probably best to start with some definitions. So H, if, if hemoglobin and hematocrit are two different things, and we can define anemia in pregnancy by looking at either hemoglobin or hematocrit. In the first or third trimesters, hemoglobin less than 11 or hematocrit less than 33% is going to be a def the definition. In the second time trimester, hemoglobin less than 10.5 or hematocrit less than 32%. So everybody should be screened in the first trimester and then again at 24 to 28 weeks because the demands go up so so dramatically and if you find anemia you gotta investigate the cause um, interestingly people that live at high altitude or who use tobacco generally will have an increased um, and hematocrit and and hemoglobin just due to the fact that that um, their lungs don't work as well so this process whereby blood cells are reproduced. It's actually, it starts with, um, um, so the hypoxia, um, you know, within the body, it's, it, it signals the kidneys to produce um, erythropoietin. And erythropoietin will drive the process whereby um, hematopoietic stem cells eventually become erythrocytes, which is the fancy word for blood cells. And so, um, both of those things, just as a note, if you live in Denver or something, you might just see that there's a bump in hemoglobin or hematocrit, or if you're a, a smoker. Obviously, if you get pregnant, smoking is not the best idea. So in, a, in classifying anemia, you have to consider inherited versus acquired causes. The acquired would be due to some sort of nutrient deficiency, like iron, vitamin B12, folate. Um, you could um, be hemorrhaging, right? That placental abruption, that's acquired um, if you are living with a chronic disease, that can be an acquired form of anemia. And then the inherited would be those things that are related to the genetics on how you make blood cells, thalassemia, sickle cell, um, uh, certain hemolytic anemias. And then, of course, we have to consider what is the mechanism by which you don't have enough circulating blood cells. And when we look at lab values, we're just looking at like a point in time, right? It doesn't tell the whole story. It just says, oh, for whatever reason, you have low blood cells. So if you're not making enough red blood cells, that could be due, again, to deficiency in micronutrients. Um, it could be that your bone marrow is suppressed due to like chronic steroid issues. Um, maybe you actually have some reason for which you're not producing enough erythropoietin from the kidneys. Um, there's also anemia associated with hypothyroidism, and that's a, a decrease in your red blood cell production. There's also the chance that you're making enough blood cells, but they're being destroyed in the body. So you can develop hemolytic forms of anemia, like in sickle cell, like in thalassemia. Um, uh, hereditary spherocytosis is an example. 
the acquired hemolytic anemia, so the inherited would be, I'm born with it, acquired as you've developed it. There's autoimmune processes, um, hemolytic uremic syndrome. I mean, there's a whole bunch there. Um, hemoly he, uh, hemolytic anemia associated with malaria is an option, is another thing to consider if you're living in a, or uh, if you're working in a, um, a nation that, that does not, that has a, a high um, incidence and prevalence of malaria. And then, of course, the last way to classify anemias is based on the size of the red blood cell, what's called the mean corpuscular volume. If the MCV is less than 80, then you're looking at um, iron deficiency, the thalassemias, anemia of chronic disease, and some other things. Um, copper deficiency is also in there in the micronutrient um, category. On the other side is the macrocytic. That's an MCV greater than 100. That's where we see our folic acid deficiency anemias, B12 deficiency. Um, certain medications can induce hemolytic anemia. That's going to appear as a macrocytic. Um, if you have anemia associated with a variety of chronic diseases like liver disease or chronic alcohol use, all macrocytic. And then, of course, everything else falls into the normocytic. So you've got an MCV between 80 and 100. If you're you know, gushing out blood somewhere and you find that you're anemic, like let's say you have heavy periods, you tend to have a normocytic um, MCV, so 80 to 100. If you uh, are just have a, a bone marrow that's suppressed, you're not producing, you can produce healthy blood cells, you're just not producing a ton of them. Anemia of chronic disease is another one. So um, there's a whole bunch of reasons for which a person may become anemic. I've included a table from the practice bulletin to help you, you know, kind of look through the innumerable numbers of, of uh, possible um, classifications or, or etiologies for anemia. So when we talk about uh, pregnancy, we have to consider that the physiology of a pregnant woman is vastly different from when they weren't pregnant. The blood volume expands by up to 50%, meaning more iron is going to be required. The red blood cell mass increases by up to 25%, and just a singleton is even more so when you have twins. And then, of course, you know, you're going to necessarily going to have to store more iron. So when we look at the normal iron indices, and by the way, when you screen for anemia, I always, in the first trimester, I don't do just a CBC. That's what I was taught to do as an OBGYN, but I add a total iron binding capacity, which tells you how much of the circulating proteins that carry iron are saturated. And if you have a high total iron binding capacity, that's going to tell you that there's there's room there for additional iron to be introduced into the into their body. Um, I also get a serum iron level and I get a serum ferritin level. There are some others, but those are the three that are most important to me. And by the way, when we consider the normal values for any of these indices, you have to consider the U.S. and the U.K. are going to be different from Australia and everywhere else. So I actually prefer the U.K. guidelines on iron deficiency anemia. I've linked it in the in the show notes. Um, from a ferritin standpoint, this is something that's really, really important. Ferritin is going to reflect the overall abundance of iron in the body. So a serum ferritin level of less than 15 um, picograms per liter is indicative of absent iron stores. If it's less than 30, it's low. And so when you look at these lab values, you want it to at least be above 15, ideally above 50. And that is a really, really important um, characteristic of a workup that I convey to a lot of my midwives with whom I collaborate 
And then I've learned even from my own blood work that, man, like I got to get my iron stores up. And if, if a person's eating a lot of iron rich foods, let's say they're not, they're not vegetarian, vegan, they're eating organ meats and everything else. And they're still sort of in the suboptimal range. You have to consider absorption. Like what you're eating is not going right into your body. It's being digested and then absorbed through the intestines with the help of your microbiome. So it could actually be an underlying digestive or, or gut issue that's leading to this. And that's why supplementing willy-nilly with iron supplements doesn't generally fix anybody's problems. We have to really consider, are you able, are you able to absorb it? And as, a, as an aside, if you want to in, enhance absorption, adding acid to the food or HCL, like HCL Breakthrough is a great product from a company called Bioptimizers, that will actually help you, you um, absorb the iron from your food. And that's really critical. But iron's not the only thing here. We have to also have to consider the structure of hemoglobin, which is carried within a red blood cell as a means of attaching iron and carrying it around the body to where it needs to go. Hemoglobin has uh, comprised of four polypeptide chains plus heme. And there's six different um, varieties of these chains, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, and, Z and zeta. We're not going to go into all of them. But adult hemoglobin consists generally of two alpha chains and then either two beta chains, which would comprise hemoglobin A, two um, gamma chains, com which comprises hemoglobin F, or two delta chains, which would comprise hemoglobin A2. In a developing fetus, hemoglobin F predominates. And then after about 24 weeks, so kind of cusping into the third trimester, um, hemoglobin A begins to increase their adult hemoglobin. So... Let's focus on, um, you know, this, this whole practice bulletin is around all the different types of anemia, but iron deficiency, of course, is the most common. It's about 2% of the general female population, and it's actually two times higher for black women compared to white. And according to the um, NANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, an assessment of iron status in pregnant individuals in the United States um, from 1999 to 2006, found that iron deficiency prevalence increased significantly with each trimester, 7%, 14%, um, and 30% respectively. And it's higher in Mexican-American pregnant women, non-Hispanic black pregnant women, and women with parity greater than two, which is just interesting. In pregnancy, it's by far more prevalent in the third trimester, which is why it's important to repeat your iron studies and your CBC in that 24 to 28 week mark. Without treatment, it is associated with low birth weight, preterm delivery, perinatal mortality. There may even be an association with postpartum depression and worse mental and psychomotor performance testing in offspring. So this is really, really important. So when we um, are thinking about the etiologies of anemia, you can diagnose this in the way that we've already described, or if you give an, an IV iron um, supplements, or you know even oral, if you see an increase in hemoglobin by one gram per deciliter, then you're probably looking at iron deficiency. And remember that iron storage can be low. That's like a depletion of iron or stored plus transport iron are low. That's decreased production. Um, or you can have decreased stored transport and functional iron. So that's like full-blown iron deficiency anemia. That means, that means that we can't just expect everybody to get better with iron supplements. So in iron deficiency, when you look at all these iron studies, you can see um, it generally presents as microcytic, meaning slightly small, hypochromic, um, a depletion of iron, you know, your iron stores, so that's the low ferritin, low serum or plasma iron, um, increased total iron binding capacity, 
and increased free erythrocyte um, portoporphyrin, port, protoporphyrin. Serum um, ferritin levels, I've mentioned this, are the most specific and sensitive thing, which is why we should be doing it, I think, for everybody. The CDC recommends screening universally. The CDC and the people that are being advised by the CDC are not always ordering iron indices, including the ferritin and TIBC and all of that. So in general, when we consider supplementing, we have to consider the typical American diet gets, gives you about 15 milligrams of elemental iron per day, but it's recommended you get up to 27. So it could be that we're just not eating a lot of iron-rich foods. Of course, if you're vegetarian or vegan, you have to be very, very thoughtful as to how you're going to absorb that iron. You know, what is the bioavailability of your iron supplementation? Um, there are a variety of foods that are super rich in iron. Um, a couple of these are, are, are on my, my nature's multivitamin super food list. Shellfish, beef, organ meats, turkey, beans, lentils. From When you get iron from <clears throat> animal products, the bioavailability, bioavailability meaning wh what you're taking in and it being utilized by your body is going to be much higher. There are a variety of other foods that if you eat it with meat, like the citrus fruits, for example, um, that acid will actually help you digest and then absorb the iron. Other foods that impair iron absorption, dairy, soy, spinach, and coffee. It's interesting. Table two from the practice bulletin lists a variety of different supplement options. Ferrous fumarate, ferrous sulfate, um, all of them are options. Ferrous gluconate and ferrous sulfate are probably the two most common. Um, there are IV formulations. If a person is not absorbing well and they're desperately in need of iron, you can always consider an IV infusion. <clears throat> and um, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. We'll talk about transfusion as well. So let's talk for a moment about the macrocytic anemias, which are also super common. We're looking at B12 or folic acid deficiency specifically. Um, also, if a person has liver disease or hypothyroidism, you can get macrocytic anemia. As I mentioned, this means that your, the MCV is greater than 100. If the MCV is greater than 115, this is almost diagnostic for either folic acid or B12 deficiency, and you can confirm this by checking serum levels of those two nutrients. The reason that uh, the way that vitamin B12 works is it, it's a cofactor in um, the, the conversion of homocysteine to methionine, as well as the conversion of um, methylmalonic acid, MMA, to methylmalonyl-CoA, to succinyl-CoA. So <clears throat> when you see macrocytic anemia in the U.S., it's almost always folic acid deficiency because generally speaking, people who eat animal products are not going to be you know, B12 deficient, although they can have absorptive issues as well. So if you recall from you know, what you've read about folic acid, universally it's recommended to supplement at 400 micrograms per day in pregnancy. Now, this is a little controversial, but most of the data has looked at folic acid. But folate is actually far more utilizable by far more people due to roughly 40 to 60 um, percent of men and women in the United States carrying some variant of a, of a mutation in the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase um, enzyme, the gene that produces that enzyme. So while most OBGYNs and midwives are still recommending folic acid because that's what the data shows, the data is only looking at folic acid because folic acid after post-World you know, post War II was so much easier to put into foods and to put into to, to prenatal vitamins. It is much more expensive to use methylfolate or some other folate derivative. So um, so when we talk about, you know, 
your diet is deficient in folic acid? No, because folic acid is not found in nature. Folate is found in nature. So we have to just be very considerate of that. Um, another reason a person may have macrocytic anemia, and this is more on the B12 side, um, is that, and this gets again into the digestion and absorption of these, these nutrients, if you've undergone a partial or total gastric resection, or if you have Crohn's disease, you can end up with vitamin B12 deficiency. And of course, if you are vitamin B12 deficient, 1,000 micrograms of B12 administered intramuscularly on a monthly basis can, can nip that in the bud. So what if um, a patient has laboratory evidence of anemia but is asymptomatic? So if it's mild, just reasonable to investigate further in some of the ways that we've already described. If it's moderate, then definitely investigate. Consider hemoglobin or electrophoresis if, you have, um, if your patient is of African, Southeast Asian, or Mediterranean descent. And it's actually reasonable to just treat empirically um, with iron while awaiting further studies, which you know sometimes can take a little while to come back. So in general, when we're considering you know, some of the more common causes of anemia in our population, iron deficiency we've mentioned is really, really common. Um, the uh, thalassemias are relatively common, and then anemia of chronic disease due to liver disease and to um, kidney disease and that type of thing, or even like chronic autoimmune conditions or inflammatory bowel disease, that type of thing. Although that one's tricky because, as we mentioned, Crohn's can also lead to you know, immune nutrient deficiencies and whatnot. But basically, chronic diseases generally carry a pattern of chronic inflammation. And so when we're looking at iron and total iron binding capacity and ferritin, there's going to be a little pattern that emerges. So in iron deficiency anemia, iron levels are decreased. Total iron capacity goes up, ferritin goes down. With thalassemias, all three of those are going to be in the normal range. And if you have anemia of chronic disease, you're going to get a decrease in iron, a decrease in total iron binding capacity, and an increase in ferritin. So you can use this little table, it's table three in the show notes directly from the practice bullets, and you can use that to sort of discern what type of um, issue you might start investigating first. When should we consider blood transfusion? So it's almost, uh, it's very, very rare for this to emerge, but a concealed placental abruption is an option. And um, we have to consider that if hemoglobin is less than six grams per deciliter, that we're going to end up leading to a pattern of abnormal fetal oxygenation, and that leads to all the heart, heart rate issues, amniotic fluid issues. Um, the baby will start to um, preferentially um, uh, perfuse the brain over the rest of the body, and the baby can die. So we have to be very, very thoughtful about this. Postpartum is a different story. So we have to consider, you know, is there coagulopathy like HELP syndrome, DIC, um, uterine atony, placenta previa accreta, um, and I say those together because they tend to come in a pattern. Um, and then, of course, um, placental abruption can all result in the need for transfusion postpartum. So if any of those things are present in pregnancy, you should be prepared for um, possibly having a lower threshold to transfuse. Just have it in the back of your head. Maybe get a cross match of blood ahead of time. And then when should we consider an iron infusion? So this is really only useful for those rare patients who can't tolerate oral iron and you've tried working on the absorption stuff, you've done your full workup and you just can't seem to get it corrected with total, you know, with, with oral iron supplements. Um, you know, maybe they have some sort of severe malabsorptive issue due to 
you know, some sort of surgery on their intestines or whatever, then of course giving iron directly into the veins is going to be really, really helpful. There is a 1% chance of anaphylaxis. Um, iron dextran more likely to cause a reaction than ferrous sucrose. You will get a faster result from IV iron compared to oral. But by about day 40 after treatment, the two routes are comparable. So you'll see an immediate bump, but if you're getting adequate um, oral supplementation by about 30 to 40 days, which reflects the lifestyle, the life cycle of these blood cells, you should see an equal response when you compare the two. Um, there is currently insufficient data to guide decisions around erythropoietin treatment in pregnancy, and that has been like kind of a, it keeps coming up, but there, there really is, is not enough data to support that yet. Guys, that's it. Anemia and pregnancy. There's quite a bit more that we could talk about, but I think that that's a good primer. There's plenty more in the show notes. And um, and what can I say? You know, Lily Nichols has some great work. Real Food for Pregnancy is an awesome book. The Weston A. Price Foundation is another great resource. Um, and then, of course, considering the role of sleep and the adrenals and the thyroid and adequate hydration and breathing and all of this other stuff that I'm always harping on is also very, very relevant here to this conversation. So thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next time here on the reboot of the ob gyno Wino podcast. Do no harm. Take no shit. Bye, everybody.